This is Truth Encounter, and Deuteronomy chapter 22 talks to us about immorality, adultery, and rape. As our study leader, Dave Wurtson, renews our discussion from last time, he takes us into the deep waters of deciphering the difference between rape, an act of aggression, and mutual promiscuity when both parties desire the physical relationship. Does God care about distinctions like this? And what can we learn about protecting ourselves from the seduction of illicit sex? Dave? Now we talk about in verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman, some of you feel that the Bible is chauvinistic, I want you to see that both the man and the woman in the case of adultery were stoned, they were dealt with. They said both the man and the woman, they must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. In old Israel, both the man and the woman that broke their marriage promises, that broke the vow of marriage and committed adultery, they were taken out and they were stoned. Now in verse 23, we turn to the case of rape. It says, if a man happens to meet in town, a virgin, pledged to be married and he sleeps with her. Now this girl is like the Virgin Mary was. She was in a time when she was betrothed. She was in old Israel. She was legally married to her husband but she had not consummated the marriage. In old Israel, that was a lot more binding legally than our modern engagement. Most of you know that. And that's what it's talking about here. If a man meets in town a woman who's a virgin who is betrothed to her husband-to-be, but they haven't consummated the marriage, and she sleeps with this man that she meets in town, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. Now, you need to understand something. The Hebrew text makes it a little bit clearer, too. There is complicity in this case. These are case laws. It's, and the idea of a case law is that you don't just look at the tale and say, well, this lines up exactly, and this is the case, so wham, we stone them. The idea of case law is that it gives you a pattern. It gives you a paradigm. It gives you a model of the way that you deal with cases. What this text is saying is that this girl's in town. She's betrothed to another guy, but she is seduced by another guy, by a stranger, or somebody new that she meets at a party or something. And she is attracted to him, and there's a feeling in the text that they mutually are given to each other. There's an attraction for one another, and they have an affair. So she's involved in this. And then it says that because she was in town, she could have screamed out. It's very interesting. Many, many years ago when I was studying this text and back in Hebrew class when I was taking my doctoral studies, all the talk about rape at the time was don't resist at all. I remember having you know, some of the police and different ones come in and say, a woman should never resist. Don't scream. Don't do anything. Just totally submit to them. And I remember reading this text and going, boy, you know, God just didn't know the latest scientific research. Then suddenly, I think it was a few months ago, I saw another show, and this time there were some lady policemen. It's interesting how it all changes. Now we've got some lady policemen that are talking. And suddenly I hear stuff like, yell, scream, hit him with your purse, make noise, do anything. Because often it will scare someone away. The idea in Deuteronomy is that the woman in town could have called for help and there would have been men in Israel that could have rescued her. Because in their society, people were still involved with one another. 
Maybe in our society, sometimes it's not good to scream because who's going to be there to help? Because we're not connected. And it brings us back to the idea we need to be connected. If somebody screams for help, we need to go a running. It talked about another case in the next verse. In the first case, the woman was complying with the person. It says in the next case, for out in the country, verse 25, a man happens to meet a girl pledged to be married, and he rapes her. Only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the girl. She has committed no sin deserving of death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders his neighbor. For the man found the girl out in the country, and though the betrothed girl screamed, there was no one to rescue her. I want you to notice something. This is very important. In our society right now, rape is one of the leading problems. You kids are going to go to university, like, for example, down to UT to get introduced to the school, and all of you have this at a and everything else. You'll have long presentations, not about how to take notes in class, but about all these sexual things. And they'll tell you where you get all the preventatives and everything, but they don't buy the stuff that's in this text. But they'll also talk a lot about rape. You know that there's even a university right now that has in their code of ethics, they have a whole series of things that you must go through. You go to a party in the university, everyone gets drunk. And in the drunkenness, people begin to act and they're beginning to move toward one another sexually. In this school, they have rules. You need to ask, can I hold your hand? And the girl has to say, yes, it's all right for you to hold my hand. Can I kiss you? Do I have your permission to let me kiss you? And the girl has to say, yes, you have my right. Thou mayest kiss me. <laughs> then you say, now may we go to your room. Will you allow me to go to your room? And then they go right through. They go right through the whole thing. And I want to tell you something, guys. If you don't have it written... Before the act of immorality, you need to get a sheet of paper out. I have consented in my right mind with proper protection. I will allow you to have this relationship. And guys, if you get involved in an affair and you don't have that, watch out. You'll be in court. Now that's the craziness of our society right now. A man couldn't write this, but some of the prominent intellectual girls in our culture, you know what they're writing? Girls, you want to stay away from date rape? One of the major things you can do is don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. In fact, a whole lot of promiscuity is just eliminated from the culture. If we learn, don't be drunk with wine, which slowly dissipates your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is God's children. The second world is not going to be able to live like that. But it's God's children we must. This text is saying, though, that there is such a thing called rape. And for every guy, none of us really live. Very few of us live with the kind of fear that a woman has. And I want you to see what Deuteronomy did. We've had cases where it's talked about promiscuity, immorality. But when it talked about a woman who was grabbed, who was seized, who was abused sexually, totally against her will, it does not call it immorality. It calls it an assault. And this is back 1,400 years before Jesus even came to this world. And I want every one of you to make the distinction because we might have to deal with some of this right in our own church. In my counseling ministry, as in working with people like at summer camps and stuff, there are girls that have had this done to them. And one of the most terrible, tragic things that happen is they feel so dirty. They feel so used. They feel so worthless. 
in the Simba uprising in Africa, a dear missionary doctor, we'll call her Helen, was ministering faithfully for the Lord for many, many years. And she had, she had healed bodies and she had proclaimed the gospel and people all over the country loved her. When the Simbas revolted, they broke into her hospital compound. They killed many of the missionaries. They threw her into a room. She was a dear woman up in close to 60 years of age. And one of those Simbas came into her room and just brutally assaulted her and sexually molested her and raped her. I'll never forget reading the account because Helen wrote an account of that experience. She talked about the dirtiness, the violation. She talked about the horrible guilt. She talked about weeping, weeping, weeping. How could she ever be the woman of God that God wanted her to be? And it took a long time to get over that experience. One of the things that just deeply helped her was the fact that in the, in the ministry of the Spirit as she prayed, the Holy Spirit began to nurture her soul, and he said, Helen, no one can take away your virginity because it is involved in your whole personality. Nobody can violently seize it and abuse it and destroy it and hurt it because your virginity is wrapped up in my commitment to you and your commitment to me and who you are as a person. And she allowed the Lord to bring healing. But I want you to notice the distinction in Deuteronomy. There's a real tendency, and we still do it in our society, if a girl has been violently raped, in the back of many minds, people are saying, it was her fault. And Deuteronomy is very, very clear saying, there are cases, and in our society, the cases are rising because of the terrible terrible moral decline of our culture where a woman totally against her will is assaulted. And that's what Deuteronomy calls it. And I want you to notice that Deuteronomy says that woman should not be punished at all. It says that the one that perpetrated the crime in the Old Testament law, they were stoned, which shows you how serious it was. But the woman was cared for and tenderly ministered to, just as if she had been beat up, she had been mugged, in a city street. We move to the next scenario. It says in verse 28, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married, and he rapes her, which might be a little bit strong. I'm not sure that the Hebrew would, would use that strong a word. And they are discovered. He shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. If we compare this with the Exodus law, I think it might be more accurate to relate these, this paragraph to the case of some young people that get in trouble. And I want you to see God's mercy. God realizes the power of sexuality. God realizes that even knowing all the instruction, knowing all that you have, sometimes people make mistakes. In the book of Exodus, it says that if a young man and a young woman have sexual relations, it says that the young man needs to go and ask the father. If the father will allow him to, he needs to pay the full bride price, and then he can never, never divorce her. There's a very important reason for never divorcing her. Because one of the things every one of you need to nail down, I'm going to talk to you real straight today. Some of you might have been married for many years. If you were promiscuous, if you had a relationship before your marriage, it's really important. You might not have ever done so. Make it right before God. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, 
can cleanse you from every sin. But don't just ignore it because it will sit on your life. Satan will use it to bind you. It creates a potentiality for not keeping your covenant vows. Very important to go back. You can always do business with God and he can forgive you. And then there can be holiness. And I want to say to you, if you do that, if you go to God and say, God, we made a mistake, then both husbands and wives, let it go. Don't allow, you wives, don't allow the fact that that happened. If there's forgiveness, don't allow it to forever rob you of trust. Learn to forgive and trust in Christ to work through your husband to change him and vice versa. And God can bring healing. In other words, Deuteronomy recognized that young people can make mistakes. And this is once again an example. This is not God's perfect law, God's perfect heart will. Remember, we started out saying that virginity was really important in ancient Israel. Virginity was right at the heart of God. But I want you to see that God realizes the fire and the passion of human sexuality. And when there is sin, God enters in and he says, now we need to take this mess and begin to order it. Some of you say, well, David, as I listen to you, as I look back over my life, this is the very first time in my whole life that I've ever really heard someone teach like this. I didn't know anything about sexuality. In my first marriage, maybe you've been married two or three times, I never even learned any of this. And you're sitting here and you go, man, like, what do I do now? Now I'm married, you know, here I am. God comes to every one of you and says, right here where you are, if you're in your fifth marriage, and you just came to the Lord, the Lord says, okay, we're going to order it now. Now's the time to allow the grace of God to really work in your heart. I want every one of you to realize that. Not one of you need to miss what it means to walk with God morally pure, morally right. The text closes with the case of a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we have a case where a man did that. And Paul severely came down, which leads us into something I want to do. Some of you are sitting here saying, Dave, you've been in the Old Testament the whole time. I thought we lived in the age of grace. I thought we lived in the time of grace. One of the pastors came up to me and said, Dave, as you talk to us about grace, as you talk to us about forgiveness, which was one of my major themes of the spirit of a pastor, does that mean that, we're, that we jettison the law of God? Does that mean that we don't have ethics? I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a passage that you know really well. Now stay with me because this is very important. 1 Thessalonians 4 is the passage that we read at funerals about the coming of the Lord. But a lot of you don't remember. Remember, you know, behold, I'm going to tell you a mystery. You know, the Lord's going to come back. 1 Thessalonians 4. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. You all remember that. But look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1. It says, finally, my brothers, and your sisters will be included in that. Finally, my brothers and sisters, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you to know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul's going to say, just like I started out today, I'm going to give you some instructions that you need to be afraid to disobey these things. If you disobey them, it's going to hurt you. It can bring death to you in some cases. It is God's will that you be sanctified. You say, Dave, what does that mean? It's, it is God's will that you be holy. It is God's will that every individual be set apart, especially for the service of God. 
and God invites us to be holy just like him. Now, that sounds very spiritual, and we can say, well, that means we need to sing holy, holy, holy. That's right. That's part of it. And we need to talk about the coming of the Spirit to warm our hearts and touch our hearts. But I want you to notice that Paul didn't say, it is God's will that you might be sanctified. I want you to sing in beautiful, melodic tones. And I want you to sing with great awe and great mystery. He doesn't say that. Notice what he says. It is God's will that every one of you be holy. And then he nails it, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should learn how to control his own body. That little phrase can be taken one of two ways. I'm not sure exactly which way it should be taken. One way is the way the NIV is translating into here, that every one of you needs to know how to control your own physical body. I want to say to the young people, I want to say to you adults, our society, and I want to say especially the young people, our society sells kids short. So many that I talk to, they say, Dave, you're mean, you're cruel. Man, you don't want them to use preventatives and all that stuff. All you do is talk to them about abstinence and all that stuff. Man, don't you live in a realistic world? Yes, I do. And I live in a realistic world where I don't think there's one of our kids that is an animal. I don't think there's one of our kids, my own kids and my extended family, there's not one young person that's just an animal. And don't you tell those young kids and the older kids as they mature that they can't live morally pure. They can't. In fact, God says... Be, be holy. I command that you live sexually pure. Moms and dads, your society takes money seriously. It doesn't take sex seriously. I don't care what the atmosphere you believe in your society, God still comes to us at the church of New Testament believers and he says, be holy. Abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body. It could mean that we can learn to control our body. It also could mean this. Every one of you husbands and every one of you wives need to possess the vessel that God has given to you. In the scripture, it talks about a woman that's married to a man, that woman being the vessel of her husband. And it talks about the man being the vessel of his wife. And they are to learn. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul in another passage, it's difficult to interpret, the Apostle Paul says, if you begin to act in a way that you could be moving towards sexual immorality, be sure to get married and then be sure to meet one another's needs. And that could be what Paul's referring to here. Maybe he left it a little bit ambiguous because it needed to cut both ways. We need to learn before marriage to, to possess our bodies in purity. And then we need in our marriage to use our bodies to fully meet the needs of the partner that the Lord gives to us. It says, not in passionate lust like the unbelievers who do not know God. And that, this matter, and that in this matter, I want you to look at verse 6. Every time you're sexually impure, every time you give in to sexual sin, I want you to notice what you're doing. That in this manner you should not do wrong to your brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such things. This is in the New Testament, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. I asked the question, how often did the stones fly? Not too often. In John chapter 8, they brought a woman, according to Deuteronomy 22, that should have been stoned. They only brought the woman, no man. 
They threw her down before the Lord and they said, the law of Moses says we should stone her. And Jesus Christ got down and he wrote in the sand. Remember that famous story? And it might not be in the, the traditional text of, of John, but it definitely is from the first century and it fits so much with the theology of the New Testament. So I'm not going to argue with you about whether it's in the text or not. It's true to the heartbeat of Paul and John's thinking that was given to them by the Holy Spirit. Jesus wrote in the sand. And he, then he looked up and he says, He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, those angry Jewish men walked away. And then the only man who can legitimately throw the stones looked up. And he said something really important. He didn't say, you're forgiven. Go and live any way you want to. In fact, go out there and get involved with a whole lot more men because I forgive you and the more you sin, the more I can bless you with my forgiveness. That's libertinism. And it's from the pit of hell. Just as seriously as legalism, license will destroy your life. You know what Jesus said? He said, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Now I want to close right down where we live. I talked to you about Dale and I flying up, and I want to share with you the battle that every one of you are having. We landed in North Platte, and Dale had to make a telephone call. He's always calling home for something. That's good, really good. And he was calling about some other things. And I sat down in this kind of this lounge. I'd sit down, settle back. We'd just been flying all those hours. I'm kind of tired. I'm getting ready to preach that night. Right on top of the magazine, right there it is. People Magazine, Time. Newsweek, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Now, in Truth Encounter, before that came out, I used as an introduction, beware of the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated. My boys and I have had talks about that. You find stuff, you know, when they're coming through puberty. And, and here's Dale. You know what? And this is what goes through my mind. Dale's got his head turned. He'll never know. That's what goes through every one of your minds, men. Women, your temptations are a little bit different. I'm going to talk to you really straight because this is tearing church families apart. And I'm thinking, Dale will keep his head turned long enough. I can flip through that magazine. I can see those pictures. Now, I want to tell you something. That is absolutely crazy. Absolutely nuts. And that's what your sexual sin is. It's nuts. You say, Dave, what did you do? Well, for once in my life, I grabbed the magazine and I turned it over to a very dull advertisement on the back and said, now somebody else is going to have that temptation. You say, Dave, why don't you flip through it? Number one, my brother was there. In just a few minutes, he would hear me preach for hour after hour after hour. What are my methods going to mean if Dale turns around and looks at me and I was flipping through this Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? So number one, I have an accountability to my brother. Number two, I know that Mary would kill me. <laughs> now I'm going to talk to you about a deep, deeper thing. When I as a man look at another woman like that, I internally murder the one that means the most to me. The Lord gave me a beautiful wife. By the grace of God, 
she's prettier now than she was when I married her. Don't you think so? I think so. And if I look at another woman, then I hurt her. And that's why I don't do it. That's why when that crazy thought comes, I remember my legitimate relationships. I have a relationship to my brother. I have a relationship to the precious gift God has given to me. I could go on and talk about my relationship to my sons and to my daughter, my relationships to you. But finally, I have a relationship to my Lord. My Lord had to suffer and die on the cross because of that craziness inside of me. And he rose again to give me the strength to turn the stupid thing over and not give in. And Paul comes to us and the power of Christ comes. He says, go and sin no more. Be free to find the love of legitimate relationships. When we are tempted, let's remember our legitimate relationships with our brothers and sisters, our marriage partner, and most importantly with God. Solid counsel on how to resist the craziness of illicit passion. I appreciate Dave sharing honestly with us about the temptations he faces and what the Spirit of God is teaching him about overcoming these temptations. These have been two very insightful lessons on how to maintain purity in the midst of a promiscuous culture.